All right, church. Well, let's, um, let's come back together and prepare our hearts to hear what the Lord wants to teach us today. Would you turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6? We're nearly through this wonderful letter by Paul to, to Timothy. And if, uh, if, you've, if you have um, been at any of our biblical parenting classes, you, you have heard me share what I'm about to share. Um, and who knows, maybe somewhere along the line, I, I shared it in here as well. Um, but years ago, I came across this. I thought it was so perfect and so um, accurate. But it's an introduction to property law, but from a toddler's perspective, okay? From a toddler's perspective about property. If I like it, it's mine. If I can take it away from you, it's mine. If I had it a while ago, it's mine. If I say it's mine, it's mine. If it looks like mine, it's mine. If I saw it first, it's mine. If you're having fun with it, it's mine. If you put it down, it's mine. If it's broken, it's yours. That's a introduction to property law. And I'm sure we can giggle and laugh because, yeah, yeah, we've seen that in the hearts of our youngest. At heart, we desire things. We want to possess stuff. We like it, we want it. And maybe from a toddler's perspective, it's the things, it's the stuff, they see that. But when we grow to be adults, we know that there's something required to get the stuff, and it's called money. A toddler really won't care about money, they want the stuff. They don't know that you need the money to get the stuff. But when we get older, we realize it's money that ultimately gives us our heart's desire. I read about a story about a guy named Robert. He had never been married. He still lived at home with his elderly father. His mother had passed away several years before. And his father was sick, and he was dying, and he was really um, troubled about his son's singleness. And his son was set to really inherit a fortune from his father. So his father brought him in to talk to him. And he said, Robert, you're going to be lonely living in this big giant house all by yourself. You need to go find yourself a wife to keep you company. So he went to a pub. He spotted a woman who took his breath away. He boldly walked up to her and he said, right now, I'm just an ordinary man. But a month or two from now, my father's going to pass away, and I'm going to inherit $20 million. So she naturally and gladly went home with him, and he took her to, to meet his father. And four weeks later, she got married and became his stepmother. $20 million. She says, I'll have that. You know, a while ago, I read a poll, and people were asked, what would you be willing to do if, uh, for 10 million pounds? Like, if you got 10 million pounds handed to you, would you be willing to do just about anything? And two-thirds of those that were polled said one or more of the following. They'd be willing to give up their citizenship. Some of you are going like, oh, yeah, I'll have that. 10 million, please. <laughs> Abandon their church. Withhold testimony and let a murderer go free. Kill a perfect stranger. Become a prostitute for a week. 
leave their spouse, and even put their children up for adoption. 10 million pounds. The reason, people love money. Sadly, many pastors, many teachers, many spiritual leaders are also lovers of money. And the Bible tells us that those who teach and those who preach about loving and desiring and accumulating wealth, possessions, okay, riches, that they're actually false teachers. That's what the Bible tells us. And there were false teachers in Ephesus, the church that Timothy is in. Paul is writing to Timothy to tell him, listen, you have lovers of money in your church. And they are these teachers that he's been addressing on and off throughout the letter. And before he gets to mention their root issue, he first reminds them of their basic theological error. And it's here in our passage. It's here in verse 3. Let me just start by looking at that with you. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3. He says, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness. Their theological error is that they don't teach the wholesome words of Christ. That word wholesome is a very important word in the New Testament. It's used 12 times in the New Testament, but eight of those 12 times in the pastoral epistles. So in First and Second Timothy and Titus, we see this word eight of the 12 times. And in every single instance except this one, we see the word rendered as sound, sound doctrine. Here, it's rendered as wholesome. We have come across this word once so far. It was back in chapter 1, verse 10, and it was uh, there, Paul, that was, he was listing out the lawless acts of the unrighteous, and he ended with saying, if there's any other thing that's contrary to sound doctrine. This word sound is important. We've looked at it before, and I want to remind you of it, of it today. This word is hugia ino, and it's where we get our word hygiene. It is a medical term, and it speaks of being in good health, being well. But me metaphorically, how he's using it here, it means to be free from error. If you're not free from error, if you are uh, subject to false teaching, Paul says it's unhealthy. It's actually not good for you. Soda is not good for you, and either is false teaching. That's what he's saying, right? Soda. I like soda. I, I loved to drink Coke a whole bunch when I was growing up, and, and I, I finally said, I'm going to stop drinking uh, fizzy, fizzy drinks. They're not, it's not good for you, not good for you. And we're, we're, we're always told what's not good for us in our health. Everyone said, don't drink this, don't eat that, don't do this. But how many people are saying, here's what's good or not good for your spiritual health? False teachers aren't interested in giving you spiritually healthy words. And here he says, these are words that do not match up with the Lord, uh, words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is going to make a connection here for us, and we're going to follow along with this today, regarding the motivation for false teaching and contentment. Are you content? Could you look at your life today and say, you know what, I look at every area of my life and I'm really content. I don't complain about a thing. My wife's laughing over here. I, I'm not going to look at her because she, she's never complaining. I don't, we don't complain. Come on, let's be honest. Do we complain? We complain about everything all the time. God has given us a brand new building 
something we've been praying for for 23 years, and we're in there, and some of us are just grumbling and complaining about the work we have to do. We're just not content people. And Paul says here in verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. If you want to know what real gain is, it has nothing to do with your bank account. It has nothing to do with your possessions. It has everything to do with, are you content? And are you content with the gain that you have gained spiritually? And that's what we're going to look at today. Godliness with contentment is the title I've given this. And we're going to look at verses 3 through 10. Follow along as I read. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men, of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such withdraw yourself. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word to us today. Lord, we, uh, we can see right away we, we really identify with this passage. Lord, we, we need contentment. And I just pray, Lord, today as we study this in depth that you would really open up our hearts to see um, our desperate need really to be content in all things, that we really do have enough, but also to see the connection that discontentment has with false teaching and how it can quickly and easily lead so many people away into false beliefs and into, um, Lord, untruth. As we just pray today by your spirit, Lord, you would reveal these things to us, that we would might, um, Lord, uh, better understand these things, but also apply these truths to our lives for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first, we're just going to look at just a couple points here as we go through this. Paul begins with looking at the healthy teaching, healthy teaching, and what that is, it's Christ-centered, and it is godly. Look at um, what he says in verse 3. He says, if anyone teaches otherwise, otherwise, other than what? Well, he says, other than the words of our Lord Jesus. So firstly, um, sound, healthy, wholesome teaching is teaching that comes from Christ. That's the first point here. It's teaching that comes from Christ. Now, we have looked at Acts 20 uh, many times throughout this study. That's where Paul called the Ephesian elders. Remember, he's talking to Ephesus. He called the Ephesian elders to meet with them and to warn them that savage wolves would come in. You remember that? He would come in among them, and they would ravage the flock, not sparing them. And he also said, from among yourselves, men will rise up. And what are they going to do? They're going to speak perverse things. And their motivation for speaking perverse things is to draw away disciples after themselves. Now, that's a really strong warning. 
And you might look at that and go, gosh, Paul, what's the solution? I mean, he says, it's going to happen. What do you do to stop it? Well, he actually gave that solution two verses later. We'll look at this now. It's Acts 20, verse 32. So now, brethren, again, he's speaking to the Ephesian elders, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Now, I think it's really interesting that he says, I'm going to commend you actually to the word of his grace. And what that's going to do, it's going to build you up and he brings up inheritance. There's going to be inheritance among those who are holy, who are those who are sanctified. It, it there points to the future, doesn't it? I think Paul knew to some extent that some of the perverse teaching that would come in would be about greed. It would be about possessions. And we combat ungodly teaching with godly teaching. That's how you, you battle that. Remember Paul writing to the Ephesians in his book, letter to the Ephesians, he described the offensive weapon we all have. It's the sword of the spirit, which is the word of truth. It's the word of God. Even when we studied chapter 4 of this letter, a good minister of Jesus Christ, he's described as one that's nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine. It does come back to doctrine. Excellent teaching. The way to be truly nourished spiritually, to be spiritually healthy, is through good doctrine. Now, I have heard so many times people completely comfortable in churches because they have great worship, they have a lovely fellowship, maybe they serve amazing coffee. But the teaching is, it's all right. The teaching is, ah, it's here and there, it's hit and miss. In fact, I heard someone say hit and miss before. I said, hit and miss what? His word? Uh, truth? Would you really want to subject yourself to that? We're to be understanding that it's about good doctrine. And Paul warning these Ephesian elders says, you need to be committed to the word of his grace. It comes down to the words of Christ. Good doctrine is doctrine that's in line with what God has said, not what man has said. Now, when Paul says even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ here, he doesn't mean only the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are a lot of red-letter Christians today. You know what I mean when I say red-letter Christians? Some heads are nodding. I have a red-letter Bible. What that means is, if you don't know, the words of Jesus, they put in red font. So you know just by looking at it, oh, Jesus said these words. Now, not all Bibles have red letters, but red-letter Christians would say, you know what? I don't need anything in the Old Testament. You're not going to see red letters there. I don't need anything in the New Testament that isn't in red. I just need to obey what Jesus said. It's all about what Jesus said. And they'll argue and fight over what he said or what he didn't say, what he did talk about, what he didn't talk about. Well, Jesus only spoke what the Father wanted him to speak. That's the words of Jesus. Jesus doesn't teach uh, anything that is contrary to what the Father teaches. Jesus is in agreement with God the Father 100% of the time. Let me take you to John chapter 7, verses 16 to 18. Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it's from God Oh, whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, 
but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true and no unrighteousness is in him. Jesus didn't teach his own doctrine. Jesus didn't have doctrine that was separate from the doctrine of God the Father. He was in full agreement with God the Father, and he only taught what God the Father wanted him to teach. In John 8, 26, he says, I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. I just love it that people go, it's only what Jesus said. We don't need to look at the Old Testament law. You know, Jesus didn't ever talk about homosexuality, same-sex marriage. We, we don't have to look at that stuff. We just need to see what Jesus talked about. But he only taught the things that he heard from the Father. He doesn't say anything contrary to the Father. And a few verses later in chapter 8, verse, verse 29, he says this, And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. In John chapter 17, verse 4, the high priestly prayer, Jesus is praying to God the Father. And he says, I've glorified you on the earth. I've finished the work which you've given me to do. Amazing. If Jesus preached anything contrary to God the Father, that God had already revealed in the Old Testament, Jesus taught something different, he couldn't say that he had done everything to please him. He couldn't say that, oh, I've, I've glorified you on the earth. He would be a liar. To define good doctrine as the wholesome, healthy words of our Lord Jesus is to say that, the, that good doctrine is God's revelation through the entire word. I, I pick on that for a moment just because I've heard people bring this verse up to say, oh, see, it's only about the words of Jesus. Paul says it's only the wholesome words of Jesus. But Jesus taught only what the Father taught. Healthy doctrine, first of all, comes from Christ. And when it comes from Christ, here's what it does. It promotes godliness. You see that in verse 3 again. At the very end of the verse 3, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness. Do you want to test someone's teaching? See if it produces godliness. Look at their life. Are they godly? Is there righteous fruit? Now, this test doesn't originate here with Paul. Paul doesn't uh, come up with this. This is something Jesus came up with, didn't he? We all know it. It's in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 20. He, he, he tells us to test people by their fruit. He says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Now, isn't that just like what Paul said? There's going to be men among you, so they look like sheep. And they want to come and, and they want to ravage the sheep. They're really, really wolves. Well, how would you know if a wolf was in your midst if he looked like a sheep, right? And Jesus says, here's how you know. You'll know them by their fruits. And then he tells a very interesting little story here. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, you will know the, the, by their fruits you will know them. Jesus is given a little analogy about trees and fruit. And what he's saying is there is that organic connection between the root of the tree and the fruit of the tree. Right? If there's no good root, there's not going to be good fruit. So if you don't see good fruit, you know that they're false teachers. Why? Because they don't have a good root. Makes sense? That's all he's saying. He says, you'll know them by their fruit. 
the, the pastor of the largest church in America will have his people hold their Bible up in their hands, and they will be saying this. I didn't memorize it because I don't really want to, but they say, this is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have, and I can do all it says that I can do. Today, I'll be taught the Word of God. I boldly confess that my mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I'll never be the same in Jesus' name. Now, that sounds really good. The only problem is that they close their Bibles, they set it down, and he never preaches from it. It looks good, right? It's amazing. That's amazing. I'm going to be taught the word of, of God. And he might quote a verse here or a verse there, but it's really largely an inspirational message. It's just meant to encourage them. It's meant to inspire them. So what about those things who I'm sorry, those people like, like this person who, who teach things that are contrary to good doctrine because what he doesn't teach is doctrine. What he teaches is just self-help things. Well, we're going to look at that now. False teachers. Paul wants to focus in on that. They are the discontent ungodly. Look at verse 4. He's going to describe them here. He is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, and evil suspicions. So firstly, we see that they disagree with Christ, don't they? He's already said that. They disagree with Christ. They don't preach. They don't consent to the wholesome words of uh, Jesus. Instead, he describes them. He goes to the root things. He goes to their pride. That's the first one. They're proud. They're just proud people. They're proud. They don't um, agree with Christ because it sounds a whole lot better to come up with your own great swelling words and have people be amazed at your teaching, be inspired and encouraged by what you have said rather than what Christ has said. They're proud. And the word proud here is tufao, and it means to puff up like a cloud of smoke. We, we would say blowing smoke, or maybe they're full of hot air. They set their own teaching as superior to the word of God. It's superior what they have to say. Now, that's the epitome of arrogance, isn't it? To say that I have much more to say. I have nothing to say to you when I come up on the Sunday morning other than I love you. I have nothing inspirational to tell you. I have to tell you what God's word says. That's, that's my role. These people are so proud, they want to be the source of the teaching. And 2 Peter 2.18 says, For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. This is how they speak. Great swelling words, but they're empty. They're empty. They allure through the lusts of the flesh. This same teacher will say things like this. Jesus said, I am because you are. Now that's just sacrilegious right there. Jesus did not say, I am because of you or me, anything. Jesus said, I am because he was declaring who he was. I'm God. Here's a great example of great swelling words that are empty. If you develop an image of victory, success, health, abundance, joy, peace, and happiness, nothing on earth will be able to hold those things from you. So all I need to do is simply develop an image of victory. I'll have it. 
or an image of success, and I'll be successful. An image of health, and I'll have it. Now, let's look at this. Let's put our hats on. Do those words agree with the words of Christ? Would would that be something that Christ would have taught? I want to bring your attention to the Apostle Paul. Would we all say, Apostle Paul, pretty godly man? Pretty godly man. Serving the Lord with all he has. Well, Apostle Paul was given a great vision. He was given a great vision of heaven. So great was the vision that he could have gone out and probably made a lot of money because of the vision. Would you see things like that today? Oh, I've been to heaven. Let me write a book about it. Let me sell it. Let me tell you what heaven's like. There's unicorns. There's ice cream, right? They're just going on and on. Paul, to keep him humble so he wouldn't brag about what he'd seen in heaven, God gave him what Paul calls a messenger of Satan, a thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what it was. Many think it's some sort of sickness, something related to possibly his eyesight. But whatever it was, was extremely painful and uncomfortable. And so Paul prayed fervently. He says, three times I asked the Lord to take this from me. And here was the response of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 12, 8 to 9, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my affirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Did you see who he pleaded with? He says, the Lord. Now in my Bible, which is a red letter Bible, the words that come back to him are in red meaning these are the words of Jesus. This is Jesus's response. And Jesus said, your image of victory and health is sufficient. No, he didn't. He said, my grace is sufficient. Because when my grace is sufficient, then my power is made perfect in your weakness. Amazing. And Paul said, well, gosh, if I'm going to have Christ's power resting on me, I'll gladly boast about my infirmities. Praise be to God. But see, that's not what you hear from the pulpit from many. They take uh, the power behind these things out of the hands of Christ and places them into the hands of man so that we can be gods. You are gods. Jesus said, I am because you are wrong. I'm not. I'm nothing. It's Christ's power in me. See, that teaching comes from a place of pride. That's what people want to hear. False teachers have an overinflated sense of their own importance. Here's a great example. Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8, verses 9 to 10. He's described here, but there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And that's what teachers today want to be said of them. This man is the great power of God. And Paul would say, I am weak, and in my weakness, you see the great power of God. You see the difference? Quite a difference. These people are proud. Is he a proud teacher, proudly proclaiming his greatness? Look at the root. They also are described as knowing nothing. They know nothing, (laughs) meaning this. They obviously know some things, right? But meaning they don't have true spiritual insight. No true spiritual insight. Romans 1.22 
describes them this way, professing to be wise, they became fools. By the way, that's a description of all of humanity. Before we became spiritually enlightened, we professed to be wise, but really, really were fools. Sure, these people have wisdom, but it is earthly, it is sensual, it's demonic. That's how James describes that type of wisdom. But he also describes the wisdom that is from above in James 3.17. The wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. What's he describing here? Fruit. Fruit. It's peaceable. It's gentle. It's pure. It's full of good fruits, he says. False teachers don't have this wisdom because they don't seek it. It's earthly. It's sensual. And it's not coming from a place where there's any kind of fruit. So they're proud. They know nothing. And they're also described here as having really an unhealthy craving for disputes and arguments. It says they're obsessed with disputes and arguments over words. Unhealthy cravings for those things. They desire uh, to dispute over the minutia of Scripture. This word obsessed is noseo, and it means to be sick, to be taken with such a morbid interest in a thing as is tantamount to a disease. It is another medical term. Paul is contrasting here for us. It's the healthy, spiritually healthy doctrine of Christ contrasted with the sickness, this disease, extreme unhealthiness. And what is the sickness? It's, it's controversies, it's disputes, arguments. They have word battles, fighting over terminology. The plain meaning of the text, that's disregarded. Instead, they have an unhealthy fixation over, over one word or, or one definition. These are spiritually sick people, Paul says. If they're, if they're fighting over these things, they're, they're just they're missing everything. In the 80s, this is a long time ago, there was a Uh, a panel of 150 critical scholars that was formed called the Jesus Seminar. You ever heard of that? that? But basically, they they wanted to get the the collective view of the historicity of the deeds and sayings of Jesus of Nazareth. So they they poured through the Gospels to see who is this Jesus really, and will be the Jesus Seminar, and we'll come and tell you, because we're all scholars, who we have found this Jesus to be. At the conclusion, this is what they came up with. Jesus was a mortal man born of two human parents. He did not perform any natural miracles. He didn't die as a substitute for sinners. And he didn't rise bodily from the dead. The sightings of Jesus were nothing more than the visionary experiences of some of his disciples rather than actual physical encounters. How how do you come up to that? Because they're scholars, and they dug into words, and they dispute over, oh, this is not what really was meant here. What really was meant was this. This is not what really Jesus said. What really he meant was this. Because you can't argue with scholars. They just throw a bunch of big words out at you. But it's theological, intellectual, sleight of hand is what it is. Ultimately, we know what these things are. They're doctrines of demons. Paul talked about that earlier in this letter. They're not the words of Christ. They're not the doctrine which accords with godliness. And so they disagree with Christ completely. They also display ungodliness. They disagree with Christ. They display ungodliness. Look at verse uh, four, the second half of verse 
4. Over which from uh, which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men, of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth. There's a whole bunch of fruit listed there, and I would say it's not very healthy fruit. What fruit do they produce, or what do they not produce? Well, first, here's what they produce, disunity. Look at those words, envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions. None of those words tell me they're pursuing unity in the body of Christ. Because of their obsession over disputes, they fail to produce unity, and instead, they produce a constant friction. That's what that phrase, useless wranglings of men, means, a constant friction. And let me just ask you, is that what true believers are to be pursuing and to be producing? No. Ephesians 4, 1 to 3 tells us, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So they fail to keep unity. In fact, they don't even pursue it. And instead, they produce constant friction. There's just strife and envy and evil suspicions. Basically, everything an overseer of the household of God is, is not to be. When you look back at the qualifications of a leader in the church, they're disunity. They create disunity. They're also described as men of corrupt minds. Corrupt minds. I think about their minds and being corrupt. What that means is that they have no spiritual connection to give them the proper spiritual mind. You and I, in Christ now, have spiritual insight. Our minds have been renewed, yeah? Renewed by the Word of God, the truth of what His Word teaches us. But these people are corrupt in their minds. And Romans, Paul describes this in chapter 8, verse 7. He says, "...because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be." A carnal mind is, is hostile to God, and so it cannot function in the spiritual realm. It still is in the mind of the natural man. But we, we are different. We have the mind of Christ. Now, I'm not, that's not a bragging thing. Just saying we, we've seen the light. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 2, 14 to 16 describes the natural man. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The natural man cannot know the things of the Spirit of God. We can because we have the mind of Christ, because the Holy Spirit indwells us. And since false teachers do not have the mind of Christ, they're also destitute of the truth. It says, destitute of the truth. We think about what a good minister of Jesus Christ is to be. What Paul has already talked about, a good minister, in 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're also going to see in 2 Timothy, I'll just give you a glimpse, that a good minister of Christ is one who rightly divides the truth. In 2 Timothy 2.15, it says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That is the, the role of a minister. But isn't this interesting that we're told a false teacher actually is destitute of the truth? They don't have the truth. 
They can't give you the truth because they have no spiritual ability to do so. He goes on to warn Timothy of the kinds of things that we are to reject in the verses that follow that, 16 to 18. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort who have strayed concerning the truth. You see that? They, they stray concerning the truth. And these men strayed from the truth, and they're destitute of it, meaning they're spiritually bankrupt of it. They have no truth in themselves. The reality is they don't really desire the truth. They desire something else. And here Paul's really getting to the bottom of it. They desire money. Look at verse 5. Useless wranglings of men, corrupt minds, destitute to the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. They imagine that the ministry, coming into the ministry, godliness is a means of gain. So contrary to the requirements of elders who are to be free from the love of money, these guys are obsessed with it. And worse, they go into the ministry not to shepherd the flock, but to fleece it. This is happening all over our world. And Paul described the last days as perilous times where men will be lovers of themselves and lovers of money. And we're living in the last days. And I want to see if this sampling of teachings I'm going to give you right now from health, wealth, and prosperity teachers matches with what Paul warned us of, okay? How about abundance? What, does, what do people say about abundance? Remember, these are not my words. I'm giving you quotes of false teachers, just to clarify that, because this could easily be taken out of context. He wants you to live in abundance. He wants to give you the desires of your heart. God is turning things around in your favor. On wealth, God wants to increase you financially by giving you promotions, fresh ideas, and creativity. That's God's heart. One said this, it's a matter of your faith. You got $1 faith and you ask for a $10,000 item, it ain't going to work. It won't work. Jesus said, according to your faith, not according to his will or if he can work it into his busy schedule. He said, according to your faith, be it unto you. Now, I may want a Rolls Royce and I don't have but bicycle faith. Guess what I'm going to get? A bicycle. Now, it sounds very witty. It sounds very slick. And, oh, you're right. Jesus said, according to my faith. So I just need to have the, the faith to get whatever I want. What about prosperity? You will often receive preferential treatment simply because your father is the king of kings and his glory and honor spill over onto you. That same presupposition is um, basically imposed upon a new rendition of Psalm 23. And this is really even hard to read, I got to tell you, because it's just horrific. The Lord is my banker, my credit is good. He maketh me to lie down in the consciousness of omnipresent abundance. He giveth me the key to his strong box. He restoreth my faith in his riches. He guideth me in the paths of prosperity for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk in the valley of the shadow of debt, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thou preparest a way for me in the presence of the collector. Thou fillest my wallet with plenty. My measure runneth over. Surely goodness and plenty will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall do business in the name of the Lord forever. Horrible. 
One more on success. God wants you to live an overcoming life of victory. He doesn't want you to barely get by. He is called El Shaddai, the God of more than enough. Jesus spoke more about money than he did about heaven or hell. And nowhere is this more evident than in the gospel of Luke. And I'm just going to shotgun a bunch of scripture here to see, does, do, these, do these things accord with the wholesome words of Christ? Let's just see if it matches up. The first recorded words of Jesus in his public ministry in the gospel of Luke, it's actually a quote from Isaiah 61, 1 to 2, but here it is in Luke 4, 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. First words of Jesus, I'm coming to the poor, to the spiritually bankrupt. In chapter 6, verse 20, blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. In verse 24, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Jesus delivered the parable of the rich fool who died the very night that he was contemplating his bulging barns. And maybe I need to build more so it can hold more of my stuff. And he used it as an illustration uh, to, to warn the rich. And he said this in chapter 12, verse 15, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. In the parable of the shrewd manager, Jesus first advised this in Luke 16, 9, And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. Believers should use their wealth, use their possessions generously, which will give evidence of their faith and commitment to God, not to build bigger barns for themselves. Jesus closed that same parable with a very famous warning in Luke 16, 13, No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Luke 16 closes with the parable of the beggar Lazarus and the ungenerous rich man who at death discovered a mighty reversal had taken place. And it left Lazarus in Abraham's bosom and the rich man in hell begging Abraham for relief. And in chapter 16, verse 25, Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus, evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. Next, in Luke 18, when a rich man balked at Jesus' challenge to give his possessions to the poor and follow him, Jesus responded with these words, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Stating categorically, it's impossible for a man or a woman who trusts in riches to get to heaven. And lastly, there is the salvation of a rich little man named Zacchaeus, who upon salvation gave half of his possessions to the poor and fourfold reparations to anyone he had cheated. And Jesus said this to him in Luke 19, 9, and Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this home because he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. I don't know about you, that's just a survey of one gospel, of what little I just took from there of what Jesus taught about riches. And I would say I don't see a lot of connection to what those false teachers teach about abundance, about wealth, about prosperity. Clearly, the teachers teach things that are contrary to the doctrine of 
Christ. Randy Alcorn says this about money. Money makes a good servant to those who have the right master, but it makes a terrible master itself. Money may be temporarily under my control, but I must always regard it as a wild beast with power to turn on me and others if I drop my guard. And this is the issue with these false teachers. They're mastered by money. Mastered by it. And so we're told in verse 5 at the end of that, from such withdraw yourself. We're not to be listening to that kind of teaching. Why? It's unhealthy. It's not healthy, wholesome, good doctrine. It doesn't give you spiritually what you need. So to contrast all this, we're given here about uh, a teaching about faithful teachers, described as the contented, godly. And we'll go through these rather quickly here. Look at verse 6. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. The false teachers believe that godliness can bring gain. Faithful teachers, we also believe a similar thing. Godliness can be, bring great gain, but it's with contentment. Paul teaches something here that he himself had learned. The secret of being truly rich in this life. Who wants to know the secret of being rich in this life? Boy, someone can take that clip out, right? <laughs> I'll give it to you. Be content. You want to be rich? Be content. Paul learned contentment. In Philippians 4, 10 to 12, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Paul was supported generously by faithful people like the church in Philippi. But he says, you know what, though? I learned, I learned to be in need as well. I've, I've experienced it all. And, and I'm sure you guys can identify with this as well. Don't you go through those ups and downs in life? I can think back to the lives of being, you know, our, our, our young married lives, so destitute, we were splitting a McDonald's Happy Meal. We could just afford one, and we'd split it. We've learned abundance as well. And we've looked at God has just abundantly given us so much this year. I don't know why. We should be content in every state we are in. Why should we be content? Why should the godly be content? Three reasons. First one is this. You can't take it with you. Verse 7. For we brought nothing into this world and it's certain we can carry nothing out. I like that he says it's certain because it's certain. We can just go to the pyramids and see that's certain. Those pharaohs lodged away all their riches hoping they could take it with them in the afterlife. Guess what? Stuff's still there. Well, at least it was until robbers came and took it. But they didn't take it with them. And we all know that's true. We know it's true. Don't we, what, we just labor all our lives to get ahead and to get things? And we all know it's not going with us. So let's just be content. I, I can't take it with me. I don't need it then, obviously. Job 121 said these famous words, naked I came from my mother's womb, <laughs> and naked shall I return. 
The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Meaning, I came with nothing and guess what? I'm leaving with nothing. But we're not leaving with nothing. We're really not leaving with nothing. We're, we're leaving to a great many something. <laughs> a whole lot of something. We get God. We get to be in the presence of Christ. We get to be in the heavenly city. We have eternal life. Psalm 49, 16 to 17, do not be afraid when one becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased, for when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. Again, we know these truths are, are true, but just some scripture to, to back that up. You can't take it with you. In fact, what happens is you, you leave it to someone else. That was Solomon's big thing in Ecclesiastes, right? It's all vanity. You can't take it with you. In fact, what's going to happen is that you're going to leave your wealth to others. I don't even have control over who's going to have my stuff, he says. John Stott says, possessions are only the traveling luggage of time. They're not the stuff of eternity. It would be sensible then to travel light. Something I heard Julia Vickery say, those words to someone else. She says, you need to travel light. Every time we move, we're reminding ourselves of that. We got too much stuff. Let's travel light. And we purge. And then you accumulate so quickly again, don't you? Let's travel light in this world. You, you can't take it with you. Secondly, you have enough. This might be harder for some of you to understand this one. You have enough. Verse 8, having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Hmm, that word clothing there can also mean just covering in general, like roofing. So it can include shelter. So just clothes, but also shelter. Do we have enough if we had food and, and clothing? Many of us will look at what we have and say, well, I don't really have enough. Let's take you real quickly to Matthew 6. Would you please go there, Matthew 6? Because I want you to see that these are the words of Jesus. I know you, you know this section of Scripture really well. Matthew 6, 25. Titled in my Bible, Do Not Worry. <laughs> it says this in verse 25. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. And here is the key principle, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Boy, is that not so true? We have so much. The truth is, we are all rich. And some of you say, yeah, you can't say that because you don't know my living condition. Listen, if you, if you just made the meager amount of 12,000 pounds a year, you're richer than half the population of the world. You double that, you see where that goes. We're, we're rich. We have everything we, we need. 
we can just be content, can't we? Have you been discontent about the weather lately? Certainly can say that, right? Ugh, more, more rain. And Jody was just bringing this up because we had a wonderful prayer time, the prayer thing this weekend, right? It's pouring rain again. And we were thinking like, what about people who lived in this 100 years ago in those thatched roof you know, houses and it's breezy and you know it's dripping, you know it's damp. It's, and we're sitting there going, ah, oh, the rain. Oh, let me get my hot cup of coffee in my cozy warm chair by my fire. <laughs> like it's just like, I couldn't be more comfortable in the rain. It's not even touching me. I can be content. We need to be content because first, we can't take it with us. Secondly, we do have enough. God gives us everything we need. We have a heavenly father who knows our needs. Thirdly, discontentment leads to disaster. Don't go that way. Look at verse nine. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. It leads to disaster. Remember our study of Hebrews 13, 5, and we took two weeks to talk about sex and money. We talked about money, and we looked at this verse in Hebrews 13, 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's connected to fear. We, 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 we fear, we think that gives us security. But he says, listen, but discontentment leads to greater disaster. Don't, don't fear. I have you in my arms. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. I'm always going to give you what you need. It's amazing. That, that, now, that's a truth of Scripture. That's a truth we can take to the bank. You will always have what you need, not what you want. Proverbs 28, 20 says, A faithful man will abound with blessings, but he who hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. And boy, can't you see that in Scripture? Can't you see that? The Israelites going into the promised land, Achan who stole the bacon, right? He was tempted by riches and they couldn't conquer Ai. You go to the New Testament, you see Ananias and Sapphira instantly struck dead because of their greed. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul talks about a man, verse 10, a man named Demas. For Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world. Another man straying away. To desire to be rich is a desire that is snared many a person throughout the centuries. And we're told here it drowns men in destruction and perdition. It drowns them. Look at those terms, drown, destruction, perdition. Drown, to sink to the bottom, destruction, ruin of the body, perdition, ruin of the soul. You lose everything. It leads to completely loss of absolutely everything. It's not the money that destroys people though. It's the love of it. And that's what verse 10 says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Love of money there is philarguria, and it really means to love silver, a silver lover, or avarice, or greed. How much destruction has happened in our world because of greed, of love of silver, of love of money, John Chrysostom said this, to take away, therefore, the love of money, you put an end to war, to battle, to enmity, to strife and contention. You even have that in your home sometimes, don't you battle over money sometimes? Strife and contention in the home, arguing over money. He says, don't love it. Be content with what you have, because some have strayed from the faith in their greediness. And Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. So ultimately, a love of money can draw people away from faith. Because they love wealth, they love possessions more than Christ. And the question for all of us is today is, what do you love? 
A life without Christ is one that's pierced through with many sorrows. Contentment is knowing that if I'm not satisfied with what I have, then I'm not going to be satisfied with what I get. Don't you realize that? We've all experienced that too. You have this nagging need, if I just get this thing, then I'll finally feel content. And you know what? It doesn't fill the void, does it? We all know it. We're nodding our heads. Yeah, it doesn't. Ecclesiastes 5.10, he who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. It's vanity. Don't seek to add more. Be content with what you have. A Christian is not to be self-sufficient, but Christ-sufficient. Let me end with Colossians 3, 1 to 4, to bring our mind and bring our eyes where they need to be. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Our minds are to be on the eternal things. And to just close with a quote on this scripture, Kent Hughes said it beautifully because a lot of times we think it's, it's about the no. It's the things we don't get as Christians. And he says it's the opposite. It's the things we say yes to. Our witness to the world is linked to setting ourselves apart from the world. So as Christians, we've said yes to things that are above. We've said yes to being a co-heir with Christ himself. Yes to a place prepared for us. Yes to riches stored up for us. Yes to a crown. And yes to co-regency with Christ. We don't focus on the no's, but on the yeses. What have we said yes to? Are you content with that? I am. Let's be content. Godliness with contentment is great gain, and we are rich. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for making us rich. We have so much to be thankful for. And Lord, I just confess my own heart that can be so, so quickly, so easily uh, discontent. And yet, we're called to be content, to be thankful for what we've been given, for what we have in you. You are our God. You know everything we need. And you've given us everything we need. Lord, help us to be like, like Paul, who even when he was in dire straits, learned to be content. When his abundance was overflowing, he was content. He was content through trials and tribulations, through difficulties, through shipwrecks, through floggings, and he was still content. None of us suffer to that degree, and yet so easily we just fall into discontentment. Lord, would you help your people, help us all, to remember the wonderful principles we've seen here today. We want to be people who have been fed healthy, good, wholesome words of Christ who hold on to those things that we might be spiritually healthy. And Lord, we see the connection today uh, that it has with contentment and to greed, things that can lead us away from walking with you. Be with your people today. Lord, would you encourage their hearts, Lord, to look at their lives and like that song says, to count their blessings one by one so they could say, look what God has done. We love you. We praise you for all that you have given us and all that you will give us. In Jesus' name, amen.